As Vladimir Putin's troops ravage Ukraine, his envoy in Vienna is steering the U.S. nuclear negotiations with the Islamic Republic of Iran. Israelis who know only too well what it means to have bigger neighbors determined to erase your nation from the map are trying to bring an end to the war and to help those suffering as a result of the war. But they can't forget that Putin has military forces stationed over their northern border in Syria. I'm Cliff May, and I'm looking forward to discussing these and related issues with FDD Senior Vice President Jonathan Shanzer, who recently returned from a week of meetings in Israel, and FDD Senior Advisor Richard Goldberg, who served for many years as a key staffer in both the House and Senate, and most recently on the White House National Security Council as Director for Countering Iranian Weapons of Mass Destruction. I'm glad you're with us for this discussion here on Foreign Odyssey. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. So, Rich, explain how this works, because uh, Putin's fighting a war of aggression, a war of imperialism against his neighbor Ukraine, and Biden has declared, okay, he's going to isolate and he's going to ostracize Putin. Meanwhile, in Vienna, dominating the talks between the U.S. and Iran, as I understand, is Putin's envoy, Mikhail Ulyanov. Am I just not sophisticated enough to understand the strategy here? No, you're very sophisticated. In fact, the State Department has issued a formal list of exemptions to the so-called pariah status uh, that Russia now apparently has without being a pariah. Uh, We are still telling our diplomats to meet and work with Russia, not just on the Iran nuclear talks, uh, which basically our negotiators handed over to Russia late last year when the Biden administration strategy wasn't going well. We can talk more about why, but also in all kinds of issues. A climate change, where John Kerry wants to get Russia on board for, for his next steps on climate change. Arctic issues, uh, humanitarian issues, pandemic issues, any UN agency, it says, any international organization, the WTO, and on down the list. So we have made Russia a pariah, but then said you can work with Russia in every single way and empower Russia to take the lead in negotiating an Iran nuclear deal that will benefit Guess who? Russia, in addition to Iran. I, I should. You've had a few, shall we say, tussles with Ambassador Ulyanov on Twitter, haven't you? Yeah, it's an interesting character. Ambassador Ulyanov is Russia's ambassador to the international organizations in Vienna, uh, which are predominantly the arms control related organizations. We think of the International Atomic Energy Agency being the most prominent uh, over there in Vienna. He likes to troll. Uh, leading thinkers in Washington. He likes to troll me in particular. And over the last couple of years, it's been a a wild ride where I will tweet something, uh, an observation, an analysis of of why we need to increase sanctions on Iran, why we shouldn't go back to the JCPOA or or what we're 
looking at, which is a worse new deal. And he will out of the blue, just come right over me and retweet me with, with some sort of trolling statement, uh, disinformation from Moscow. Uh, and it will get picked up by the terror on times within 24 to 48 hours with a headline, Russian ambassador embarrasses former Trump administration, FDD <laughs> senior advisor. And it's just wild, the integration of Russia and Iran for so many years now. And Russia has been their chief defender uh, in some of these international organizations. When the nuclear archive was exposed and we started learning more information about undeclared nuclear sites and materials, clandestine activities that are going on right now, by the way, while we're negotiating this deal, Russia was the one who was saying, look away. Don't do this. Don't don't pursue this information. We object. This is a fabrication. This is nothing. This is all in the past. Why are you doing this? They defend Syria at the OPCW for the same reasons. They are the ones chemical who don't weapons. Hold That's a chemical weapons organization. That the, the, the organization for the prohibition of chemical weapons. Because Russia is the leading state of not keeping to its own international commitments and obligations, right? They use chemical weapons. They, of course, want to flout these international organizations and protect the revisionist anti-American powers who also flout these international obligations and commitments. So they are very much aligned. And if we think this Iran deal is going to be anything other than an escape hatch for sanctions for Vladimir Putin, we have another thing coming. All right. Before I go to John, uh, one more question. I think it's important. What do you know? What do we know about where the deal, the the, the deal, the nuclear deal stands at this moment, just generally. What do we know is in it? How soon is it likely to be? We'll come back to this, but just give us a general picture. Yeah, it's bad. It, it's gone from bad to worse, shall we say, over the last uh, few months. Uh, we recall that the original deal lifted all U.S. sanctions that were in place at the time uh, in exchange for Iran self-imposing some limits that, of course, they could break at any time because we let them keep their enrichment capabilities intact and continue to enrich uranium on their soil. Uh, along with sunset provisions that allowed Iran, even if they held to the agreement, to start uh, doing various illicit activities in their nuclear program, expanding their enrichment levels, purity levels, their use of advanced centrifuges within a, sh a few short years. It did not cover their ballistic missile, cruise missile program. Uh, it did not cover their sponsorship of terrorism and, in fact, gave them $100 billion plus dollars to fund all of those uh, illicit activities plus continue to build up this robust nuclear enrichment infrastructure so that at a time of their choosing in the future, they could cross the nuclear threshold. This deal takes that architecture, leaves the sunsets in place, right? So those same expiration dates, still the same dates, seven years later, which makes very little sense, and says all the sanctions that have come after the United States left the deal in 2018 will also be lifted. All the terrorism sanctions, which, by the way, we were told we could impose under the deal, will be lifted. The missile sanctions will be lifted. Human rights sanctions, corruption sanctions will be lifted on some of the worst human rights abusers, including the president, Raisi, in, in Iran. The foreign terrorist organization designation of the IRGC, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, we are told, will be lifted. This investigation I just talked about at the IAEA that's been going on for three years based on the archive into undeclared nuclear sites materials, a violation of the NPT, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, not just the JCPOA, will be ignored. Sanctions will be lifted anyway. So this is, this is a very, very dangerous, bad deal. Even if you believed Iran would hold by these self-limiting constraints, and by the way, we will allow them to keep some of these advanced centrifuges in place. We don't know exactly what's going to happen to their enriched uranium stockpile, 
but we know that they will be under fewer restrictions with the same sunset provisions in place for more sanctions relief. So President Biden came to office saying he wanted a longer and stronger nuclear agreement with Iran. He is negotiating a shorter and weaker agreement with Iran. All right, we might come back to some of this, but I want to go to John on this. And also, uh, to get back to the war, Naftali Bennett, the Israeli prime minister, he's trying to be a mediator. Is, is that making any progress? Where start where you want to, John? So first of all, great to be with you guys. Um, I'll just add one more thing to what Rich just ticked off in terms of all of the, the really negative signs that we're seeing out of Vienna. The thing that we've heard recently, it's appeared in the Iranian press, is something called um, an inherent guarantee. And according to reports, and I, I heard rumors of this in Israel as well, uh, that it, it appears that the United States is now willing to uh, give a written guarantee to the Iranians. It's unclear whether this was a Russian idea, an Iranian idea, or an American idea. Um, but the idea here is that in the future, should a um, another administration decide to leave the deal, there are inherent guarantees for Iran that they will begin to uh, legally enrich uranium at perhaps even 60%. And then on top of that, they can install some of their more advanced centrifuges in greater numbers. So in other words, what is in this deal now is a, um, is a provision that enables Iran to act unilaterally and it is a sign that this administration is taking the side of the world's foremost state sponsor of terrorism against the assessment of future American administrations, Democrat or Republican. That is nothing short of shocking. It is a total violation of nonproliferation norms, to put it mildly. And um, we'll have to wait and see whether this, in fact, ends up in the final deal, but very, very troubling. And let's understand part of what they're what the reason they're doing this is because this deal, like the JCPOA, as important as it is, is not being submitted to Congress as a treaty. A treaty would bind the U.S. They know because Tom Cotton, senator from uh, um, uh, Arkansas, said this last time: this is not bind. This will not bind the next administration. So the Iranians are thinking: well, how do we bind the next administration? How do we make it so th- so that and the next president can't say what a terrible deal we're going to change? We're going to bind them, and here's how we're going to do it. And essentially, Biden administration is saying, yeah, we'll help you bind our successor, even if we're voted out of our office because this is a bad policy. And the American people express that at the ballot box. We'll make sure the will of the American people cannot be expressed effectively. Is that not correct? Right? I mean, what, what they're effectively doing right now is giving the advantage to um, a foreign government that seeks the destruction of the United States, by the way, they're giving the advantage to the regime in Iran over Americans in the future without even knowing what the objections might be. They're trying to tie the hands of any future administration in revising this in any way. And it is just to say that it's irresponsible is is obviously an understatement. It's incredibly dangerous. Go ahead, Rich, you want to get it? Yeah, I, I would just note that, of course, th- this is an incredible thing to write into the agreement, right? And especially if they have provisions that say no country can object, no country can try to take them to the Security Council to snap back UN sanctions if they do this, right? Which would which would make this really very difficult. But recall, this is exactly what Iran already did in the last two years while being in the JCPOA, right? They they have never left the JCPOA. 
right? right they claim right, they are right, still right. in it and doing all of these terrible things that we're afraid of, supposedly, while saying this is allowed by the JCPOA, but the Europeans have launched a dispute resolution mechanism that went nowhere, which is this convoluted, ridiculous bureaucratic process set up by the deal that they started in January of 2020. How's that dispute resolution going two years later? And so this is them formalizing this for PR deterrence, for political deterrence in Washington so that deal supporters can say, oh, no, 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 can't leave the deal. Look what they could do. It's in the deal. Mm. I guess, again, we can come back to some of this stuff, and I will because I've got a lot of questions. But, John, talk a little bit about the the tightrope that uh, Israel is walking here. Yeah. So, I mean, this was the big takeaway from my recent visit to uh, Israel, apart from the fact that the Israelis are dreading this looming Iran deal. They're um, they're, they're doing everything they can right now to um, do the right thing with regard to Russia and Ukraine, while also protecting their national interests. And this is not an easy thing for the Israelis to do. I think it's maybe worth recalling that you have roughly, um, I guess it's about 15 percent of the Israeli population is Russian. This comes from the um, estimated 1.3 Russians that have arrived over the years um, from the former Soviet Union, some in the 1970s during a campaign to get them out, some after the fall um, of the Berlin Wall in 1989. Um, But Jews have have flocked to Israel, and it's for that reason that um, that Vladimir Putin has viewed Israel as an important jurisdiction. He sees himself as the leader of all Russians worldwide, and so he's kept a fairly friendly relationship on a political level with the Israelis. Now, things changed uh, drastically in 2013. Uh, 2013 was, if you recall, that was the red line debacle uh, of President Obama. This is when Bashar al-Assad used chemical weapons on his own people. The United States had warned that if that happened, that you would see an intervention by the United States and that um, it would probably lead to regime change or at least significant strikes on the regime in Syria. At the end of the day, after some hemming and hawing, after actually asking APAC to lobby for an intervention, the Obama administration did an about face and they made it clear that they were not going to touch Syria. Um, And it was at that point that Putin, after hearing the United States say multiple times over that we were not going to be putting boots on the ground in another, um, you know, another hot zone in the Middle East, that was the moment where Putin said, well, fine, if you're not going to go in, well, then I will. And he established a, a valuable port in Tartus uh, on the Mediterranean and began providing weapons and actually uh, was on the ground, special forces working hand in glove with Hezbollah, with the IRGC, and they effectively saved the Assad regime. The problem for Israel comes maybe a year or two into this new situation where the Israelis begin to see that Iran is smuggling advanced weapons to Hezbollah through Syria. And when I talk about advanced weapons, we've talked about it on this show clip. We're talking about precision guided munitions, PGMs, incredibly precise weapons that could potentially hit Israel's chemical plant in Haifa, the nuclear uh, facility in Dimona, um, multiple air bases, military bases around the country. It can hit within 10 yards of its intended target. So the Israelis say, we're not letting this happen. We have to go in and start bombing. And so over the last uh, seven years or so, the Israelis have taken out thousands of targets in Syria, but the only way they can do it is with Russian permission. And so they've set up a mechanism that enables Israel to alert the Russians in advance when they're going to go in 
with their F-16s or F-35s. And um, it's worked. There have been a couple of hairy moments where the Israelis have um, angered their Russian counterparts, but it has been a system that's been respected by Putin. The relationship is friendly. It's cordial. It's professional. And the Israelis need it if they're going to prevent a massive war on their northern border. And now fast forward to where we are today. And you have the United States and others from the international community, certainly the chattering classes here in Washington, pushing the Israelis to go hard at Putin. And they simply cannot. They, I mean, they joined the UN resolution condemning, but they need to be really careful about sanctions, which Putin has described as an act of war. The last thing the Israelis want to do is to declare war on the man who controls the skies over a territory that they need to operate in. And so that is ultimately what led Naftali Bennett and his government to seek out this um, mediation channel. And that's what we're seeing now, that Bennett has actually just gone this past weekend, flew to Moscow, met with Putin, did so, by the way, on Shabbat, did so on a day where he usually would never travel. Um, And the goal here is to try to be useful for the West, to be useful in maybe even to try to end the war or certainly to mitigate it, um, but without triggering Putin. So it's been an attempt to walk this incredibly difficult tightrope. So far, so good. Um, Bennett appears to have won the trust of both Zelensky and Putin, while also, I think, you know, updating the United States, the Germans and, and others, uh, other interested parties. But this is certainly not easy. What, what really troubles me, though, is that you know, none of this would have been happening in the first place. Israel would not be worried about condemning Putin, um, nor would they be worried about uh, gaining uh, access to the north had the United States done what it said it was going to do back in 2013. Israel is still paying the price for this. And by the way, one last thought, let's just say Israel succeeds. Let's say Israel, by some stroke of luck, is able to broker some kind of a ceasefire or an end to the war. Do you know how Israel is going to be thanked? It will be thanked with the JCPOA. You yeah, can't which, imagine which, what that's like for, for the Israelis. There is no win here. Yeah, it'll be Israel will be thanked by the U.S. giving billions of dollars, letting the, the regime that threatens Israelis with genocide to have, to have billions of dollars for terrorism, possibly the removal of the uh, sanctions for terrorism, which will continue, and aggression against their neighbors. But let's talk a little bit about their other neighbors, because... Uh, it's not just Israel that is threatened by the Islamic Republic of Iran. It's Saudi Arabia, it's Bahrain, it's United Arab Emirates. Now, this week, uh, Biden uh, banned Russian oil, which is a nice gesture, um, but I don't think it's more than a gesture because only about 3% of our supply comes from Russia. Now, to make up for that 3% or more, it would make sense for Biden to say, okay, I am least for now, I'm going to lift restrictions and even encourage domestic energy production. We were just a couple of years ago, three years ago, whatever it was, uh, not energy independent, but energy secure and a net exporter of of energy. He could do that, but he's not doing that. What is he doing instead? He's going hat in hand to the dictator Maduro in Venezuela and saying, can we kiss and make up and maybe you'll produce some more oil? Maduro, if you don't know how bad Maduro has been, I'm not going to tell you now. I don't mean you guys, I mean anybody listening, 
but he's just dreadful. He he's also going he's also going to the Saudis, to the Emiratis, uh, who've declined to even take a call from him, which is quite a snub, but one can understand why. And I'll just throw this in in case either of you want to talk about it. It's complicated, but people should understand Biden also hasn't done secondary sanctions, which would be a way to really hurt Putin much more strongly than banning Russian oil going to Hawaii or something like that, which maybe you start on this. I've opened a whole new box of. Wow. Yeah, that was like 500 <laughs> threads to pull on. So which, which one do we start? On? Let, let, let's let's start at the very beginning, as the song says. Uh, on day one, right, when this invasion began. There were many of us uh, in the sanctions community, uh, sanctions experts, people who had worked in the prior administration, who said, Mr. President, go all in today, impose secondary sanctions on the Central Bank of Russia, on Spurbank, on Gazprom Bank, on all the other Russian banks, for SWIFT, the SWIFT international banking system, to disconnect all those banks, including the Central Bank of Russia. And if you are worried about the impact on energy prices, Follow what we did 10 years ago from Congress on the Iran sanctions playbook and authorize escrow accounts to be set up throughout the world for customers of Russian energy where Putin can't get the revenue back. The money has to sit in Berlin, has to sit in Beijing. And if the bank processes the transaction, transfers the money in any way, then that bank is threatened with U.S. secondary sanctions being cut off of the U.S. financial system. We have not done that. Today, there are no U.S. secondary sanctions, which is to say that it's not just that U.S. persons can't do business with Russia or the Russian Central Bank. It's not just that dollars are restricted from transactions. It's that China couldn't do it. It's that India couldn't do it, right? It's that anybody in the world, Iran couldn't do it, Venezuela couldn't do it. So if you have no secondary sanctions in effect, and, you know, yes, I agree with you. This this ban on U.S. oil is a populist idea, probably poll tests very well. It is a rounding error, error for Vladimir Putin. He's going to get the oil sold elsewhere until we have these secondary sanctions with escrow accounts to trap his revenue. He's making more money off the increase in oil prices right now. But because we don't have those secondary sanctions in effect, if you lift sanctions on Iran, right, and it's no longer sanctionable for the central bank of Iran to do transactions, and there's no threat to the Central Bank of Iran through secondary sanctions to do business with the Central Bank of Russia, well, now you've opened an entire sanctions evasion hub for Russia in Iran. And by the way, guess who else is an ally of the Russians and a close, increasingly military ally of Iran? Venezuela, Maduro, right? So now we have a triangle of sanctions evasion, a triangle of an anti-American military axis in our own backyard, that we would be inviting. It's complete lunacy. Oh, and on your Saudi question, I'm sure John's going to add on here, an entire year spent of policy to push Saudi Arabia away from us, to make MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, a pariah, to remove terror sanctions from the Houthis in Yemen, who are sending missiles against Saudi Arabia every day, uh, to offer to lift terrorism sanctions now on Iran for an Iran deal, and then call and say, hey, King, just swing production. Help us out, buddy. We we just need you on this one. I know we're going to lift sanctions on the IRGC on Monday, but hey, it's okay. I mean, what do they think is going on? But I just got to add this, and then I'm going to go to John because uh, you. I think you you had this on your, on your 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 Twitter thread, and that is the, whole, the relationship since the 1940s with Saudi Arabia has been essentially one. 
We provide you with security. You provide us with oil. That's the basis of it. Let's be honest. If we're not providing security, and we're not, if we make this deal with Iran, then why should they provide us with oil, right? Yeah, I mean, look, that's exactly right. I mean, just to put a finer point on on what you both have just said, you know, the the Saudis undoubtedly made some pretty significant missteps during the Trump administration. But just to be clear, it was the close relationship that existed between Trump and the Saudis and the Emiratis. That's what the Biden team objected to. Their decision to spurn the Saudis and the Emiratis and others along the lines of what Rich suggested, which is to pull support for the Saudi war in Yemen on almost day one of the administration, to delist the Houthis as a terrorist organization, even as they're attacking the Saudis, to once again call out Mohammed bin Salman by name and to release new information. Actually, it was old information about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the the Washington Post uh, columnist. All of these things were designed to effectively engage in virtue signaling to Democrats here uh, at home. This was for domestic consumption primarily. It was not a policy. Just to be clear, they just spurned the largest oil producer in the world, the people sitting on the largest oil reserves in the world. They did it for political gain and here at home with no tangible outcome that we could foresee. And by the way, on top of that, missed an opportunity to forge a, uh, a, a normalization agreement between the Saudis and Israel. They left that on the table because they didn't want to engage with the Saudis because they preferred to treat them as pariahs. And so now what we're finding is, okay, they've got an energy policy that just imploded. They're trying to uh, rally their allies around the world. They need Saudi Arabia. They need the Gulf states. They need this as part of their strategy to come out at least even stable during this current crisis. And they're beginning to watch it all blow up in their face. And it is deserved. The problem, of course, is that it's the American taxpayer that's going to pay the price at the pump and that we're going to continue to watch the unraveling of the U.S.-led world order. Now, it could be that the Gulf states still come to the aid of the United States. They may realize that, look, the Russians and the Chinese, they may look sort of attractive right now, but it's really not in our interest to do this and that we are going to stick with, with the horse that we rode in on. That may be where they go. But I have to say, it is certainly not guaranteed And all of this could have been prevented had we just had people (laughs) engaging in what I could only call responsible statecraft. And, you know, that's sort (laughs) of an inside joke for folks like us. Can I just can the Saudis not and there's no one advising to say to Biden, look, I understand what you need here. I want to give it to you, but I'm going to give you a list of things that must not be in this agreement. If because if they are, that's sort of. You know, we're, we're, we no longer have an allied relationship anymore. So here's five things that can't be in this agreement. And tell me if you're and you promised that these wouldn't be. And but I'm, I, I hear from leaks and reports and Ambassador Ulyanov, who's bragged that this is what's going to be. And can you do this? Or maybe that is happening, Rich. Well, you know, it's up to the Saudis to negotiate for themselves. And and we've seen Rob Malley, yeah. the special envoy for Iran, make stops yeah. in Riyadh. He, he supposedly has briefed them along the way. He's briefed the Emirates as well. He's briefed the Israelis. Um, you know, one of the funny things is that they've been very open kimono on just how bad this deal is. Right. It's sort of, you know, we're not going to stick you with the knife in the back. We're going to stick it right in front of you smiling. And, 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 I, and I hope you'll be there for us <laughs> when something like this happens. But hey, 
this is what's happening. Don't fight it. And the knife keeps going in. Uh, I, I wrote an essay last month and I said, listen, there is still time to reset the relationship and re-engage Saudi Arabia before there's a crisis, before we need them. And there were easy steps to take. Put the Houthis back on the terrorist list. They attacked Abu Dhabi. They sent missiles. They attacked a U.S. base in the UAE. Why are they not on the foreign terrorist organization list? Just say, you know what? We gave it a chance. We took them off. They've proven to be a terrorist organization. We thought Trump uh, uh, went too fast with it at the end of his term. We've made the determination. They're back on the terror list. I, I, and just in case anybody doesn't know, the Houthis are the uh, are, are the rebels backed by the Iranians in Yemen. Just so people get that, in case anybody doesn't know, right? Yeah. Uh, speak to uh, MBS on his vision 2030 and on the pr- progress going on on the ground on on social changes, and say, you know what? Part of the relationship that we would like to see for the 21st century is not just oil for security. But we want to see your commitment to counter extremism continue. We want that locked into the relationship, which is exactly what we're seeing out of MBS today. And so engage him on that and say, you know what, in exchange for that commitment and these tangible benchmarks for counter extremism and counter radical Islamism, we will commit to these economic principles to support Vision 2030 and the integration of the region. Right. And by the way, you can't side with China. You can't side with Russia. This is a U.S. led order to integrate the Middle East. It includes Israel, who you're already talking to and you want to normalize with. It is, it is mind-boggling the, the degree of malpractice for U.S. national security that we have witnessed over the last year. Let me try to get in a couple more, two, three more subjects as, if we can. One is uh, Sergei Lavrov, who's the foreign minister of, uh, of, of Russia. Uh, in recent days, he added an interesting wrinkle. He said, look, in this deal, no sanctions against Russia over the war in Ukraine can apply to our commercial and military relations with the Islamic Republic of Iran. Is that going to be in the deal? Because that undercuts as well the sanctions that right now Putin is right now that Biden is putting on Putin by saying, oh, Russia will be able to sell weapons nuclear power plants for peaceful purposes, and who knows what else to Iran to use against Iran's enemies in the Middle East. John, if you well, want well, to go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, Rich. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was making a couple of points and then defer to John for more. Understand that Russia historically is the provider of nuclear power to Iran. They built the Bushir nuclear power plant in Bushir. They have broken ground, have plans to build what we call Bushir 2 and Bushir 3, two new nuclear power plants that they will build and make money off of. They provide uh, the fuel for those reactors. They take back the spent fuel. They are also written into the old JCPOA, and we understand to this this new JCPOA minus to uh, take some sort of amount of the enriched uranium stockpile out of Iran and store it for a fee with the threat of returning it to Iran if America ever breaks the deal. In their opinion. In their breaks. Right. And also remember, under the JCPOA sunsets, which will remain, the arms embargo lifted in 2020. The missile embargo on Iran lifts in 2023 next year. If U.S. sanctions, which were put in place in October of 2020, are rescinded, if an executive order the Trump administration issues is rescinded, which, which threatens secondary sanctions against anybody who prepares to transfer conventional arms or missiles or UAVs to Iran is lifted in this deal, then it is open season for them to have a military relationship as well. But remember what I said at the beginning. 
I think that Foreign Minister Lavrov is just calling attention to the fallacy that we are isolating Russia. Because if there are no secondary sanctions in effect on the Central Bank of Russia or on Spurbank or on Gazprom Bank, and we lift all our sanctions on the Central Bank of Iran and all other Iranian banks, what exactly are we going to do? We're going to threaten to reimpose Central Bank of Iran sanctions if we catch them doing business with the Central Bank of Russia? No, we're not. We're not. That would blow up the deal. So, so I think we're actually locking ourselves into a sanctions evasion hub for Russia and Iran. And John, roll this into your answer. When the administration is asked about Russia, they say, well, and this is a quote, Russia shares a common interest in ensuring Iran never acquires a nuclear weapon. You think that's true? No, it's not true. Um, look, first, I think you just need to recognize that the, that the United States continues to make the same mistake over and over again. And you can really see it highlighted right here, which is that we continue to approach the world's worst regimes and we continue to offer them the sort of carrot of you know integration, of financial benefit, right? We did it with the Chinese back in the 1970s. We did it with the Russians after the fall of the Berlin Wall and, and sort of the reset with the, um, the the famous reset button with uh, with Hillary Clinton. We're trying to do it with the Iranians as well right now. And the idea is, hey guys, just play ball, work with us, be transparent, and we will welcome you into the community of nations that we created. And here's a ton of money along the way. And and it's amazing. The Russians have spurned it. The Iranians have spurned it. The Chinese have spurned it. And here we are actually trying to roll both the Russians and the Iranians into uh, a package where they both kind of agree to it on some uh, on some level. Th- that's kind of point number one. Point two here is, you know, just to take a step back, a lot of people have been asking, in, in, including internally at FDD, what is Russia getting out of this? And I think that's important to ask you, because as you probably know, Cliff, um, the Russians and the Iranians have actually have a history of antagonism toward one another. 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, there were a series of wars between uh, Russia and Iran. They don't love each other historically. They don't really get along well in Syria right now. There is a bit of a jockeying, a little bit of a competition, a little bit of friction I don't want to oversell it, but it's not exactly comfortable for either side. And uh, so then the question is, why would Russia be doing this? And I think Rich just put his finger on it. First of all, just for Russia to be at the table right now in particular, this is a boost to their international standing. Even as they're being isolated, they are center stage in a major multilateral negotiation. And the Russians love this. They are trolling everybody by doing this, not just Rich, although Rich is getting special treatment. Um, And then on top of that, they're looking for these financial carve outs. They're looking for ways to game the system. And more, I think more than anything, they realize that this administration is so desperate to get this Iran agreement back into force, or maybe not back into force, but a new agreement put into play that they are willing even to go against their own interests right now with regard to Russia and Ukraine. And just to hammer this home, on on March 9th, we saw the EU delegation at the International Atomic Energy Agency walk out of the room in Vienna at the Board of Governors meeting when the Russian ambassador Ulyanov was speaking. And they tweeted it out, you know, very impressive. This is a photo of the EU delegation all leaving the room. You know what the next photo was like an hour later? It was from Ambassador Ulyanov's Twitter account in the hotel room in Vienna nearby 
where the EU delegation is sitting with him, putting the final touches on the new Iran deal. Just let that sink in. This wrinkle, too. So Rafael Grossi, who's the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, he said a few days ago that a new deal can't be concluded unless Tehran first settles outstanding issues relating to nuclear material found at former Iranian nuclear sites, which the regime failed to declare as it was obligated to do. Now, it, shouldn't that mean, Rich, that a new deal can't happen anytime soon because Rafael Grossi has raised this issue and you can't settle that issue in a week? It takes, it's got to take months, something like that. So it's important to, to watch uh, Ro- Grossi's language very carefully because he is walking a tightrope right now. This is a still relatively new, not, I guess not new anymore, three years in, uh, director general uh, of the IAEA. Uh, who took over for a longtime director general, who was director general when the last JCPOA uh, was completed, uh, Yukio Amano from Japan. We recall the controversy at the time was we had these outstanding concerns of, of prior military dimensions to Iran's nuclear program that were never investigated. We had the Parchin military site that took ages for the IAEA to finally get access to. You know, they whitewashed the whole thing of why there's nuclear material there, what was going on, the weaponization work Iran was engaged in. And they closed the file at the request of the Obama administration in Europe to get the deal done. They just said, okay, good to go. We can't certify to you anything about the peaceful nature of the program, but God bless, go with God. And the JCPOA went underway. Grossi criticized uh, Amano's approach uh, in the years prior and leading up to all of that. And he was elected in part with the Iran file in mind, but other files as well, because of his independence, that he's a maverick, that he's going to call balls and strikes. You know, he wouldn't do anything just because the Trump administration said so, and he wouldn't just go along with something just because the Biden administration said so. He has, in his own mind, a purity test of defending the architecture of nonproliferation in the world, the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, and the safeguards agreements that the IAEA negotiates with every country, including Iran. So what he says here is, He is going to engage in an exchange of letters over the next few weeks with Iran and ask them questions about these undeclared nuclear sites and materials that they can't get answers to. And he's already closed the case on one site where he says, we can't go any further. We can't get any more information. We're pretty sure that nuclear weapons related work was done here. It was never declared. Iran today is in violation of their comprehensive safeguards agreement, which means Iran today is in violation of the NPT. They are in breach of the NPT. This is in the report of the director general to the IAEA at this March board meeting. Nobody paying attention to that. They are in violation. And he's saying, I'm going to report to you before this June re-implementation date, where this deal is going to head to, about my conclusions about all of his other undeclared activities. He says he doesn't know how you could do a deal if Iran doesn't answer the questions but he doesn't have the authority to stop a deal. So Rich is 100% right on the sort of technical nature of, uh, of the IAEA and, and, and can the, the big question marks that linger. Let me just maybe skip to dessert here and, and, and just say the following. This agreement, the 2015 one, this one now, it's not based on science. It's not based on established facts. It's not based on revelation of, of Iran's past activity, its current activity, its designs for the future. We know all of those things. 
And at the end of the day, you know, this agreement amounts to Iran saying that it's not going to get a nuclear weapon, pretending that it's not going to get a nuclear weapon, and we're going to pretend to believe them. That is the essence of what's going on here. And it is so troubling because it is, it's ignoring everything that the Israelis have brought out into the open from the warehouse. It's brought out into the, I mean, everybody has tried to put these facts on the table. This administration is not interested. The P5 plus one is not interested. They want to move past this because they just simply don't want a conflagration with Iran. And at this, I'll just maybe conclude here is, you know, I spent a week in Israel just now speaking with a lot of senior officials. And I got to say, the conversation sounded a lot like 2012, like 2013, like 2014, like 2015. We had a little bit of a reprieve during Trump because it went to maximum pressure. And there was just a moment where you thought that maybe the regime could be brought down, um, that maybe the maximum pressure campaign would actually really take its toll. But we are right back to chasing our tail and talking about the what ifs and talking about the various permutations of the deal and what you know partial sanctions might look like, what partial diplomacy might look like, it is insane. We're doing the same thing over and over again and accepting, uh, expecting different results. That is the definition of insanity. All right. We're running long, but there's one more issue I want to get at least a few quick thoughts from you on. I think it's important that I, I not leave it out. So on the anniversary of the death of General Soleimani, um, the, the terrorist leader, the, the head of the expeditionary force, the Quds force of the IRGC, he was uh, he, w- he was eliminated by by President Trump. On the uh, Iranian officials on the anniversary, they demanded that Trump and other American quote unquote war criminals be put on trial, and they said if though if that does not happen, then the Islamic Republic of Iran will seek its own revenge. And now there are reports, in particular from Tom Rogan of the Washington Examiner, very good reporter, that intelligence officials have identified at least two Iranians who have been plotting to assassinate former National Security Advisor John Bolton, and that the Justice Department is hesitating to indict them because ah, you don't want to cause trouble with the, the with our negotiator with the negotiators in Vienna and CBS News has obtained two persistent threat assessments submitted to Congress by the State Department, which cited a serious and credible threat, again, that's a quote, on the lives of Mike Pompeo and former Trump administration Iran envoy Brian Hook. Rogan writes, citing current and former U.S. government officials, that the Quds Force's current commander, Ismail Khani, is believed to have been tasked by Iran's Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei with avenging Soleimani with a high-profile assassination of a U.S. official. And I'll just mention here, FDD as an organization has been threatened by the Iranians. And various people have been, uh, FDD, including you, Rich, have been threatened by name by the Iranians. We've had a kidnapping attempt in Brooklyn uh, that has gone unanswered. And, of course, we had an attempt several years ago to blow up a restaurant in Georgetown. President Obama said, well, we'll we'll respond to that uh, at a time of our choosing. That time of choosing never came. Let me just ask for a few comments and then we'll. Uh, it, it strikes me that in a world that has no longer the feeling that I am a citizen of Rome, you cannot touch me, uh, that we live in a very dangerous world if the U.S. government will not issue threats and have consequences for a dangerous terror-sponsoring regime threatening and plotting actively 
to kill Americans, former American officials uh, who were doing their jobs to protect U.S. national security. To offer this regime, when you have active plots underway, terrorism sanctions relief, to remove the IRGC from the foreign terrorist organization list, to pump billions of dollars into the IRGC, to fund these plots, let's be very clear, to subsidize these plots is completely outrageous, completely outrageous. There there should be consequences. We should not be at the table with the Iranians. The Department of Justice should move forward with their indictments before a deal is announced. Withholding those indictments, having the front office of DOJ, if Tom Rogan's report is correct, withhold those indictments so as not to screw up the Iran deal talks. While two Iranians have been plotting to kill American officials, is the height of outrage. Every American should be outraged. Go ahead, John. Finish this. Take us home. Look, I, we, we talked about this earlier that in, embedded in the deal is um, uh, what, what, what people are describing as an inherent guarantee. And that inherent guarantee is supposed to provide the Iranians with assurances that they'll be able to make advances in their nuclear program. What there should be is an inherent guarantee that if Iran makes good on any one of these threats, that the deal is done. And not only that, but we will eviscerate them economically and there will be kinetic responses as well. That would be the responsible way of responding by this administration. Instead, we see this sort of pathological commitment to getting a deal done with one of the worst regimes on the planet. It is still something that I can't quite get my head wrapped around why this administration is so committed to getting this done in light of what we know is happening, in light of the threats that we see. One can only hope that cooler heads will prevail, that maybe the the crisis in Russia may uh, spur an about face or at least uh, prompt the administration to press pause. But unfortunately, right now, it doesn't seem to be the case. All right. These are not normal times, uh, but I'm glad there are people, you guys are certainly among them, who are trying to very hard to understand the truth, to reveal the truth, to give the administration better options than the ones it seems to be selecting. And uh, we'll talk again very soon. So thanks, Rich. Uh, thanks, John, for, for the work you do and for being on this, uh, this, this podcast. And thanks for all of, of you as well who are listening, and I hope learning, and I hope acting. Uh, good to be with you here today on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.